Good morning. Welcome to Grace and Peace Church. You may be seated. Thank you, Martin. We are continuing our study through the book of Colossians today. And today's an important day because 502 years ago, the spark was uh, lit that started what, was known as, what is known as the Reformation. It is the time in which the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, triumphed over basic principles such as moralism. Just teaching that you can be good without God, that you don't really, that if it, through your own effort you can be saved. Rather, what Martin Luther and a lot of people were doing at that time was pushing back and believing and trusting in this gospel. And so we may not have, uh, what is it, uh, bagpipes today and processions here at Grace and Peace Church, but what we do have is a big Jesus. That is what we have. And so this is the second week of our study, and we're discovering that Paul is warning this young church of sort of Christian practices. And they're they're rooted in basic morality. They've started well with the gospel, which is the real deal, holy field, 200 proof, good news of Jesus Christ that God has saved a people for himself, and they, didn't, they weren't even able to lift a finger to save themselves, but that God had done it from beginning to end. But these people now in, Col- in Colossae are facing a threat in the way of kind of Christian practices that included angel worship, Jewish festival observance, man-centered philosophies, secret wisdom, or asceticism, which is rigorous religious self-discipline. But underneath each of those practices, Paul describes them as elemental spirits, or basic pagan principles, basic pagan religion, which in the end, we would just define today as moralism. Moralism basically teaches, do this and you'll live a good life. You'll be a good person. You'll get good stuff. So today we face this uh, problem in our churches and Christianity that I think it's one of the biggest problems is moralism and especially confusing moralism with true Christianity. I would suggest that the main cause for people rejecting Christianity is confusing it with moralism or For Christians who have confused moralism with the gospel, they have huge effects on people who come in because all of a sudden it feels like I have got to get my stuff right in order to be here. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus comes and Paul comes to them and says, not so fast in Colossae. Or as Francis Schaeffer puts it, there is nothing more ugly than orthodoxy, than having the right teaching without understanding or compassion. If you lack understanding or compassion toward another person, you are probably wrestling with moralism of some sort. And so what do we have to do? And what are we doing through this walk through Colossians? We are about to scooby-doo all other religions and teaching as nothing, but, but nothing more than moralism by pulling off the mask. Okay, Scooby-Doo, I don't know if you remember, you know, cartoon dog, you know, pull off the mask, you guys get it. And so what we're doing is we're showing that each and every way that promises to be the way is really just self-focused, self-help, a therapy-based secular way of achieving and, and performing to get what only God can possibly give you. 
What is that? Life as you always thought it could be. Life with God. And moralism can't give you that. Acting the part, being good enough, you'll never be good enough on your own. And so we follow place to a, uh, Paul to this place in the text where he has such lyrical quality about the supremacy of Christ. Many have suggested that, ah, this has got to be a hymn at the time. You know, there's probably not a decisive way of proving it one way or the other. Uh, whether this is a hymn that Paul drew from, but we can be assured that Paul thinks so highly of Jesus that he begins to get poetic. He starts to wax eloquent. He is like a young man who is uh, lovesick in a musical, singing about his love. You poke him, and then all of a sudden out gushes this hymn of praise that it is so metered and organized that you're like, are we in a musical? This is weird. Because basic human speech could not do the person of Jesus Christ the justice here, he has to go and get lyrical. You know, have you ever had a friend who was newly in love and they just keep going on and on about that person they just met? Well, this is similar. Paul is saying, let me tell you about the real deal Jesus. Paul is at the end of language to talk about Jesus. Why? Because he doesn't want the Colossians to forget what they've got in Jesus. He opens with this exalted language to let people know they were not won by a mere man, but by the God-man, Jesus Christ. And by seeing him rightly, they will see other ways as only false, moralistic, basic principles that should be rejected. And so what we need to do and what Paul is trying to do is trying to give you a bit of an adjustment and trying to fix your prescription so that you can see Jesus right. Listen to the way he just wraps on about this. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in every Everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And trust me, when I was going through in the Greek, the original language, it has that lyrical quality. It rolls off the tongue. It is beautiful. He's at the end of his language. And so he wants to fix the way we see things. Off the coast of Palawan Island in the Philippines, a fisherman, probably really good looking like me, was struggling to get his anchor up off of his little boat in the bay. And so he swims down to find that it is lodged on a giant clam. And so he, or he or giant oyster, so he swims with the oyster up to his boat and cracks it open to discover that it had a 75 pound pearl in it. Not thinking much of it, he hides it in a small house as a good luck charm for 10 years. He didn't see it for what it was worth. 
Well, after a fire destroys his house, he brings it in to get it appraised. Turns out it is the world's largest pearl and is valued at $100 million. You see, once he could see the supremacy of the pearl, he could treat it rightly. And when we see the supremacy of Jesus Christ, we can understand him rightly. That he is no good luck charm. He is no add-on to help me just kind of get through life. No, he is beginning to end the Savior that we all need. The Colossians are tempted to treat Jesus as just another good teacher who should, you know, kind of taught us some moral good things, but he didn't really bring us into true salvation. He didn't give us the positive verdict that we really need for our lives. He's not really the solution for all our sin, guilt, shame, and tears. What you really need to do is get a good program, is what the people are trying to say. But Paul isn't having it. He doesn't want small views of Jesus. No, he goes big time here, and he's right. Here Paul straight up says that Jesus is God. And it flies in the face of beliefs, especially Jewish beliefs, that believe that there was only one God and he does not dwell with man. That he is, you know, Jesus, maybe he was a good preacher amongst many others. You know, and it flies in the face. And even today, Jesus, we're happy with him being a moral teacher, aren't we? A lot of us, happy. Jesus, moral teacher, cool. You know, I'm down with that. But as soon as you say that he is God, uh, people start looking at you on the side of their eye. They're like, somebody watch him. He's a fanatic. He's a little crazy. Or as Bono puts it, of you too, Jesus isn't letting you off the hook. The scriptures don't let you off the hook so easily. When people say, you know, good teacher, prophet, really nice guy. This is not how Jesus thought of himself. So you're left with a challenge in that, which is either Jesus was who he said he was or a complete and utter nutcase. You have, to make a, you have to make a choice on that. And I believe Jesus was, you know, the son of God. Because here it is. For any teacher to insist that he's God, he is either a great liar or he really is the great I am which is the divine name of God. There cannot be any in-between. Jesus in John 8, 58 says, Truly, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. And he takes on him for himself. He says that he is God. So either you write off his teachings as teachings of a liar, or you follow him as the great I am. People are like, come on, man. Vince, this age of tribalism, social media, line drawing, how can it be so exclusive? Say this, the supremacy of Christ implies an exclusivity, meaning he is the only way to actually have, to get what your heart most desires. But the supremacy of Christ actually proclaims inclusivity. It's inclusive for all those who confess sins and call on his name. For everyone who says, I have sinned and I am in need of a savior. But it excludes all moralism, all teachings that, about how you can be good with God, how you can, without God, or how you can have a kingdom with no king, how you can be saved with no savior. You know, it's all against self-salvation projects. And all performance, all performance-based religions are excluded. Christianity is the end of self-centered, moralistic teachings. So if we're to see Jesus rightly, 
we would be able to see the ugly truth of everything else. You know, once you know what you've got, then you're able to see everything rightly. And so this is my proposition. Jesus is the supremely sufficient Savior, according to Paul. Jesus is the supremely sufficient Savior. And there's two points. Jesus is a supreme Savior, and Jesus is sufficient Savior. Like that, two points. Jesus is supreme Savior. And Jesus cannot be compared to other spiritual teachers. You know, he's like in another league, they're playing in a different sport. All right, he says that, he, that Paul is insisting that Jesus is God in the flesh. When Jesus was asked by his disciples, and Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter declares, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you got it. Son of the living God. Jesus, of course, in John 8 says that he is the I am. Furthermore, Jesus receives worship. He doesn't chide people for worshiping him as God. Uh, Thomas throws himself at Jesus and says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, "Mm, You got me mistaken. When Peter was worshiped as God, he's like, Uh uh uh. Uh uh. No, Jesus is saying, You got it right. You got it right. More than that, we see 12 cowards become so brave that in the face of beheadings, crucifixions, imprisonment, torture, exile, they start proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. We see that in Acts 10.36, Romans 10.9, 1 Corinthians 12.3, and Philippians 2.11. We see that Jesus is God, and somehow these cowards become transformed, that in the face of a proclamation like Caesar is Lord, he starts saying, nah, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is but a puppet. And so he flies in the face. And then in 451 AD, a council at Chalcedon would come together. And the early church fathers declared, this, uh, declared against a view called Ar- Arianism. They said uh, Arianism believed that, believed that uh, the Son of God was a creation of the Father and was neither co-eternal nor of the same substance. And they ruled that the teachings of Scripture and the church was this. This is what they ruled. We all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, 100% God, 100% man, truly God, truly man, consisting in, in of a reasonable soul and body of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead. At the same time of one substance with us, man, as regards his manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father. Uh, The word begotten is like how a horse begets another horse, you know, so God would beget another, you know, a God, right? And so begotten of the Father before the ages, yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of, the Mary, of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one in the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. So here's what we have with Jesus. We have one person, two natures, He is heaven come to earth, 
bringing them together in one person. He is God and man, reconciling man to God and God to man in his person, in his flesh. And so Paul says in the text that Jesus is supreme in creation. He says that he is the image or the icon of the invisible God. He is wisdom personified. That's what it would mean that he is the invisible God. Invisible God here at this time and the people were looking for this this, uh, wisdom personified. The power of God made personal in one person and Paul is saying here he is. He is the image or the icon of the invisible God. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, he would say that Jesus is the very form of God. Meaning he has all the essential qualities of God. And then we see in our text that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. That in this one person, the nature of God dwelt. It then says that he's, Paul writes that he's the firstborn over all creation. Not that he's part of creation. Rather, this deals with his position or rank over all creation. He is the heir, the inheritor of it all. It all belongs to him. He is above it all. So the better translation is not the ESV that says he's the firstborn of all creation. No. The better translation is he's firstborn over creation all creation because the point of the text was that he is preeminent and then it says for by him all things were created so if he was just part of creation how could he create all things that that would make no sense you understand how that would be and so he has to be apart from creation he has to be different and so he says in heaven and on earth and so he covers everything whether it was in heaven or if it was on earth whether it was visible or invisible, all powers and authorities, even Caesar, even angels are under Jesus. All things were created by him. And then it says, Paul moves on and says that he is supreme in recreation as Savior. It says that he is the head of the church, meaning that Jesus is the one who nourishes the body, that he gives it strength. He is the worthy representative of them. He's the firstborn from the dead. It says that he precedes everybody. It says in Romans 5 that all have died in Adam. All have died. So we're all dead. But in Jesus and in the resurrection, what we have is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He ushers in a new creation. And that is the deepest hope that we could possibly have. He's a new creation. In everything, in that everything, he might be preeminent, meaning that he's supreme. So Jesus is the God-man. One person, two natures. 100% God. And what is true of God in creating all things is true in Jesus recreating all things. Because to speak of Jesus is to speak of God. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
And that, when it says that he, on all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, it, we're talking about the tabernacle or the temple in which God dwelt in it. And so in the person of Jesus, God dwells. And so sort of Christian beliefs will say, mm, you know, I don't believe that Jesus is supreme. He's a good teacher, but not God. So some sort of Christian beliefs is like, the son is the first created being. And then he just shows the way. And so then you have to get in line and start acting right. And then it says, some other ones say, Jesus, oh, he becomes God through his performance, and you can too. That's what some people say. Jesus, you know, when he dies, he gets us to zero so that we could work our way back. That ought to frighten the heck out of the, us. All right? These things, they're not very different from non-Christian ways either. Think about it. Uh, because those ways are non-Christian too. Uh, a lot of what we do is say are irreligious ways. Like, if I had enough money, then I'll have security and comfort. If I had the right body, then I'll have the romantic relationship that I always wanted. If I had the right job, then I'll have purpose. And so everything says, is like, if you perform right, then you'll get everything that you wanted. And that's moralism. You perform right, you do it right, bam, you will have the life you've always wanted. God will give you the shekels. It'll be awesome. That's moralism. And you should be scared to death of it. Why? Why? Because in the end, it dooms you to never-ending performance. It's either Jesus or a moralistic self. Either you have a supreme Jesus in salvation, or you're doomed to your record. And I don't know if you've looked at your record. I've looked at my record recently this week. Uh, turns out it's not very good. If it was up to me to save myself and it was based on my moral record, y'all, I am, I'm toast. I am toast. You know, I, I will confess a little bit here, okay? You know, like the moral thing is to help out the poor, right? And oftentimes I see poor people homeless people walking by through my front, front yard every day. And do you know what I do? I act like I don't see them. Jesus sees 5,000 people and he feeds them. It's either his record or my record. What am I going to stand on? His record or my record? If Jesus is supreme, then that's the record. See, moralism is just a, 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 just a cover-up. Just a cover-up. Uh, I didn't tell my daughter this, that I was going to use this illustration, but it came to me this morning, so I'm just going to go for it. I owe her an ice cream cone. My daughter, one day, I saw her sneak past me with a single square of Kirkland brand Costco paper towel. I'm like, what you doing? She goes, I got it. I'm like, what do you mean you've got it? And she takes off, right? She's tiny. And then I sneak up on her, and she's at the table. And apparently what had happened was she was working with some purple paint. And this purple paint had exploded on her in some form or fashion. Either that or she murdered the bottle. And there's just a problem. And she's covering up a crime scene. And she takes one tiny sheet of Kirkland brand Costco paper towel and puts it on there and starts to wipe. (laughs) 
and my table is slowly turning from wood grain to purple, like Barney purple. (laughs) And she is wiping. And then she starts crying because she realizes that there is no way in the world is she ever going to wipe up this mess. I peek my head over and tears are running down her eyes and she looks up at me and she says, Daddy, do you think you can do this? You see, moralism is like us trying to clean up our sin, our shame, and our guilt with Costco, single ply, one square, and trying to wipe ourselves clean. When we look at the supremacy of Jesus, we see that he has cleaned us fully because he loves us. And that's what Christianity is about. And so moralism will always downplay the supremacy of Jesus. Moralism is self-help. Moralism is a superficial cream for an abrasion. But the problem is you have a gunshot wound to the chest. You need Jesus. You need God. You don't need another guru. You don't need another self-help video. To have Jesus as a spiritual teacher or guru, but not God, is safe, but not salvation. To have Jesus as a good teacher will give you sentiment, but it can't possibly give you sacrament. To have Jesus as a spiritual being less than God can soothe you, but cannot give you security. Because in the end, moralism just relies on yourself. It doesn't rely on a supremely wonderful God. It tells you you have to live right in order to get the best life. It tells you that you have to be the supreme savior of your life. And that's not the gospel. But we also see here that Jesus is sufficient savior. He's the only one from beginning to end that can save you completely. So Paul turns his attention to the sufficiency of the cross when he starts to say that through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether heaven or on earth, and then he says, boom, make him peace by the blood of his cross. You see, performance and moralism is going to make you pay in some way. You're going to have to pay. You're going to have to sacrifice. You're going to have to give his own, your own blood. But instead, the gospel, what Paul says, is that Jesus sacrificed his own blood. And then more than that, he says, You who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. And he basically says that in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, basically meaning don't quit on the gospel because the truth and the beauty of it is is that Jesus' blood doesn't run out on you. You are always clean. You are always holy and blameless because he is sufficient. Don't quit on that. And so we see here that Jesus was what you needed, 100% God, 100% man, heaven come to earth. And then while we were probably sitting here asking, well, why does God have to die for my sins? 
Can't he just declare them forgiven? And St. Anselm replies with this, While the debt was so great that while man owed it alone, only God could pay it. What does that mean? Uh, Imagine you, me, and Johnny are up here. And uh, you punch Johnny in the face. And suddenly I say to you, you're forgiven. You'd probably respond with, dude, but I punched Johnny in the face. And for God to forgive would mean at this time, or like for me to forgive means that the offense was somehow against me. And so for God to forgive us would mean that somehow all sins are against him. And for God to pay for it, it says that he has taken this debt. So someone always has to pay for the punch that you have laid. And so someone has to pay. And forgiveness comes from banking terms. When a debt is let go, it is said to be forgiven. It doesn't mean that you get free money. No. Somebody has to pay. If I lend you $5 and I forgive you the debt, who pays the $5? Me. And so if God forgives your sins... Who pays for your sins? God does. Because all sins are against him. But with God we owe an infinite amount. And how did he pay it? With the infinite Savior Jesus. See, we have to understand our debt. He says you were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. How bad was my sin? Look at Jesus' body torn apart. Um, you know, and so, so how do we, how do we kind of put this? How do we understand our sins rightly? I I like this illustration of taking a ball ping hammer to a Ford Pinto. It's a crime, right? But you know, it's a Ford Pinto. Who cares? Right? That's a sin. Not a big deal though. But if you took the same ball ping hammer and went to town on a Ferrari, you'd be like, what in the world? You know, now if it was your Ferrari, you'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And that's the thing with our sins. We need to understand who our sins are against. It's not, you know, we're not sinning against the dude in his, in his uh, bathrobes and, you know, I'm just the dude. No, this is a holy God who created heaven and earth. Hey, if you know Big Lebowski, I just made a Big Lebowski reference. That's weird, you know, the dude. I'm just the dude. Um, but here's the deal. We need to know what our sins are, 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 are like. And we see it on the cross. See, in Christianity, we have a problem of reducing the supernatural work of God down to morality. Saying that my morality can kind of cover it up. See, Christian morality will deny the sufficiency of Jesus by insisting that you change to be like them. See, and I'm talking about like Christians who are moralists. This is what it sounds like. So they say, you know what you need to do? You need to change the way you vote. Change the way you talk. Change the way you look. Change the way you eat. Change the way you raise your kids. Change the schools you send your kids to. Change what you watch. You have to change, change, and change and do in order to be accepted. Rather, you are accepted is what the gospel message is by what Jesus has done. Rather, the real deal gospel-centered Christianity insists that God makes you right through Jesus and you will want to change. Uh, This week, Kanye West came out with an album. And it's called Jesus is King. And it's actually pretty decent. It's pretty good. 
I mean, it's not like the best Kanye ever, but it's pretty good. It's like in the line of Kanye, right? He releases this album in response to Jesus' work in his life. And here's the sad thing. Moralists, Christian moralists, both conservative and liberal, came out to lambast him. I read this on Twitter. Well, let's see if this conversion sticks, if he commits and sticks it out. I can imagine Paul, like, tweet responsing back. And he's like, there is no condemnation. You know, like, he's like, it is the kindness of God that brings you to repentance. Hashtag, I am saved by Jesus' blood. You know, and so conservatives are all like, let's see if he sticks it out. And then the funny thing is the liberal side says this. The liberal Christian side was like, ah, uh, he became a Christian? Ha! He must atone for his womanizing, Trump voting, and saying slavery is a choice. You know, to which Paul would probably be like, what in the... Um, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God uh, and are justified by his grace. Uh, for while we were yet sinners, uh, God demonstrates his love for us. And while that, it, that, that... God dies for us while we're sinners! And so suddenly we have this like standard for Kanye that he's got he's to jump through these hoops. You know what that is? That's not Christianity, that's moralism. And Paul is saying, are you kidding me? Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. And why is it so easy to fall for it? Because every night when we go to bed, we feel guilty about all the things we said, what we didn't say. The things we did, the things we didn't do, the ways we didn't make the cut, the ways we didn't make the grade, the ways we didn't do enough things, we didn't feel like we were enough, the ways we're failing our kids, the ways we're failing our spouse, the ways we're failing our company, our church, our family, our roommates, our student loan providers. You know, we're failing them. You see, we feel the weight of being finite, sinful, and insufficient. We're tired, exhausted, and spent. And the great temptation is to sit at night and rehearse all the ways I need to get better. It's like a little practice session. Like tomorrow I'm going to do better. I'm going to jump through those hoops like no one ever has ever jumped through those hoops. And I'm going to make my best life now. But rather, what we need to recite to ourselves is not more hoop-jumping moralism. Rather, we need to recite to ourselves Christianity, the truth. Yeah, I'm not sufficient, but I know who is sufficient. I don't have to pour out another ounce of my blood in performance because Jesus poured out every ounce of his blood so that his performance could be my performance. The beaches of Bora Bora are supremely beautiful. <laughs> the sand is warm. It's like soft, fine grain against your skin. It's like hugging your skin. Oh, and it is so white that it is blinding. Coconut palms, they line the edge of the beach to make it look like a postcard. Ancient volcano, volcanic mountains, they kind of like jump out of the ocean and is covered in lush jungle green. 
Oh, it's, it's, it is beautiful. The water is a perfect 81 degrees. It appears to be a sheet of aquamarine, and it's teeming with sea life such as manta rays, sea turtles, and dolphins. It is wonderful. When the sun sets, you feel like you're at the end of a great romance. When the sun disappears beyond, that, beyond the ocean, its last light is a flash of green, yellow, and red. Here's the deal. I've never been to Bora Bora. And many of us, you know, we say, we will say like we know these wonderful things about Jesus. He's supreme. He's sufficient. But there is a difference between describing something in a travel magazine and putting your feet in the sand and letting letting yourself feel it. And a lot of us, whenever we approach Jesus and we see God, we approach this world, we're walking around with a travel magazine description of Christianity and Jesus, and we haven't let the sand get between our toes. And when we look at the cross, and we see Jesus dying on the cross for you and for your sins, then you're feeling the sand. When you trust Jesus with all the things you confess to your pillow at night, oh, you're bathing in the sun. When you profess Jesus to a friend, you're letting the ocean winds chill your skin. When you embrace the resurrection as your new life, you're breathing in the marine aroma. When you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're taking a deep dive into the tidal wave of his love and you are declaring that he is a supremely sufficient Savior, and not just with words or a description. But you're taking it into yourself, and you're experiencing it all anew. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, you meet us in your word. You show us that Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is sufficient, And that it is finished, that we don't have to perform, we don't have to jump through hoops. Because as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we remember Jesus who was and is supreme and sufficient and is Savior. Lord, meet us now at this table. Be glorified in our worship. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Uh, here at Grace and Peace, we come forward for the Lord's Supper. And you, will, you are offered bread, which you will tear off a piece. And you remember his torn body, which is sufficient for you. Take and eat it. And you are offered offered drink, which is a wine, which is on the inner circles, and grape juice, which is on the outer circles. You take and drink it, knowing that you don't have to pour out another drop of blood in performance, because Jesus spilt it all for you. And also, there is a, a gluten-free bread that is on the table. So you'll come to the, come forward 
take and eat, take and drink, and then you can go back to your seats and sing the truth of the gospel. This meal, though, is a, is a meal for those who profess faith in Jesus. If that's not where you're at, if you don't trust Jesus as your supreme, sufficient Savior, then don't take. We don't want you to do anything inauthentic to where you are in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, please ask me afterward. But this is a meal in faith, so therefore let us proclaim our faith is signed and sealed in this sacrament. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper was ended, Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it as often as you do in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, you proclaim his death, his sufficiency, until he comes again. Let us pray. Lord, meet us now in broken bread and in wine so that we would know your gladness, your goodness, and that performance and moralism will not defeat your kingdom. Pray that we would take it in and proclaim your sufficiency and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.